You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 128. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and keep you up to date on all my writing endeavors. So, let's get going with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the conclusion of Make Believe by Brian Watson. In part two, Artax was teaching his class for paroled wizards when he was interrupted by the city's civil defense alarms. Concerned, Artax canceled the class so that he could go and help with the disturbance. On his way out, he was stopped by John Tunstall, a powerful young mage whom Artax had identified in his visions as a likely troublemaker. Tunstall suggested that he and the other students could help, but Artax shot down that idea quickly. None of them were ready for fieldwork yet, and if they ever wanted to be, they would first have to earn Artax's trust. Artax went across town and met up with the police handling the disturbance. The ranking officer on duty was Lieutenant Catherine Catane of Precinct 9's Magic Affairs section. After a bit of mostly friendly badinage, Kate filled in Artax on the situation. A rogue wizard named Michael Parker has taken over the top of a nearby tower, and he's been throwing around enough fireballs to force the cops to keep their distance. While the police tried to find a way to contain Parker, Artax received an urgent message from Levinson the disembodied spirit who speaks to him through the plants in his shop. Levinson tells Artax that Tunstall has led the other students in an escape. Working together, a group of the students immobilized their guards and fled the shop. Based on what Levinson overheard, it sounds like Tunstall was encouraging the students to come after Artax. The old man was slowing down, he said, and if they worked together, they wouldn't have to be afraid. Artax is disturbed at this apparent revolt, but right now he doesn't have time to worry about it. The rogue wizard, Parker, is out of the police department's league. If they want to stop him without anyone getting hurt, Artax is their best chance. Make Believe A Tale of Metamore City Written by Brian Watson Read by Chris Lester. Part 3 If you ever plan on deliberately confronting your own mortality more than, say, once a decade, it's a very good idea to know what your limits are. Half a lifetime ago, I thought I'd come up against my own limits. I was frustrated and ready to quit the assignment I'd been given when I had an epiphany. It was something small, just something somebody told me in passing that sparked a random thought, which created the breakthrough I'd been looking for. I never saw that person again. Just as well, really. I don't think I could have faced them afterwards. Katane could say what she wanted about what she couldn't be paid to do, but I knew her type. Even if the threat is too big to contemplate, they fight on. They keep doing what's expected of them, paying the price without counting the cost to themselves. 
Some people call that noble. Other people call it stupid. I was fairly certain that both were correct from time to time. Nevertheless, I found myself on an upper-level rooftop, facing something down that had once been a man. I wasn't sure what it was now, but it responded to me when I said, Hello, Master Parker. Artax, it said. So good to see you again. Or shall I call you teacher? It still looked more or less like a human, but larger and misshapen, like some god had gone mad and given it extra muscles at random. Its skin was darker than that of the man in the picture, but unnaturally so, like I was looking at him through a tinted window. His hair stood on end and writhed, reminding me of the tales of the ancient Gorgons, and when he turned to face me, I literally saw fire in his eyes. And there was something else, a sense of power, pulsing, moving. I felt stronger just from being near it, as if my spells would be amplified if I used them here, like swimming with a river's current. I haven't been your teacher for quite some time now, Parker, and I certainly never taught you anything like this. No, you didn't. More's the pity. If you had, people like you wouldn't be running shops for mundanes. You'd be ruling them. Must I remind you of the words of the Star Child, Michael? Which ones? The ones about how all people with any amount of power should be a bunch of simpering pussies? Or the ones where those same people should use their power to serve those born beneath them? I ventured a few steps closer. We are born above no one, Michael. Oh, but we are. Despite what our illustrious majestrix may say, all men are not created equal. Evolution has given us a leg up on the Mondays. And yet there's still far more of them on this planet than all the mages, sighs, elves, and lutons put together, I said. If you scare the mundane humans, really, truly scare them, then we're all dead. They've tried it before, he said, taking a few steps back to keep the distance between us. Belatedly, I noticed that the distance he was keeping was the optimal distance for dueling. Magical duels are best left observed from a great distance, or, if you can arrange it, on a purely theoretical level. They're bad enough when the other guy is sane and in full control of his abilities. Parker wasn't even in the same city as his sanity. And now they have everything they'd need to wipe us off the face of the earth, I said. Guns, bombs, and the common man has enough knowledge of ritual magic to make the field of battle between himself and the average wizard very level. The fire in his eyes didn't diminish. It just became more focused. He looked out over the edge of the building. All the more reason why we should strike now, he said. I followed his gaze. The city is really quite impressive. Beautiful, really. And if you can get the chance to look at it from high enough up, it even looks peaceful. But like the storm clouds that had begun brewing in the skies, there was power and the potential for great destruction. I could see St. Teresa's off in the distance, its proud spires dwarfed by the rest of the city, but still managing to make their presence known. I could see the building the Lothanasi used as their central headquarters, and if I craned my neck, I could just make out a portion of Westfall Academy. It took me only a second to realize that I hadn't spotted the three buildings at random. 
three institutions of great power, built so close together, though most people are still unaware of Westfall's true nature, or of the mystical confluence that St. Teresa's was built upon in an effort to contain. I turned back to talk to Parker, to try and bring him down, when the bottom of my stomach fell out. From the small trees the wealthy kept on their balconies, I could see flocks of birds suddenly erupting, all heading south, as the sound of dogs barking began to fill the evening. I felt suddenly nervous, tense, and it didn't take me long to realize why. Just like the dogs and the birds, I was having a biological reaction to a sudden drop in air pressure. My eyes met Parker's, which were half-closed in concentration. It took you long enough, he said. He sounded almost calm. I had thought I'd been buying people time, that by talking to Parker I was delaying his attack. But up in the sky, the clouds above St. Teresa's, Westfall, and Lothanasi HQ had begun swirling. The air was still, and the clouds had taken on a sickly shade of green. And finally I realized that the constant pulse of power that I'd been feeling since I came up to this roof had been Parker drawing power into himself to cast this massive spell. I heard a shout from the skyway, and looked down to see Tunstall running toward my building, with Katane in close pursuit. The detective had a decent amount of magical talent herself, but it tended to be along the lines of illusion, not terribly useful in a duel. If she came up here, she was as good as dead. I couldn't protect her from Parker and Tunstall at the same time. This had to be settled here, and now. Fortunately, magic has its own set of laws that have to be obeyed. Not rules that men make, mind you, but laws, like physics, that are problematic for a practitioner to get around. Parker was drawing upon massive amounts of energy, more than his inner reserves of mana could ever account for. Any wizard can do this. In fact, you don't have to be a wizard to do it, because the energy is everywhere, in all life. It's what makes it possible for mundanes to perform ritual magic. Parker was allowing himself to become the magical equivalent of an extension cord. It was all fine, in theory, until that power was released. If Parker had his way, the energy would be released into the storm to create three tornadoes, to destroy what he perceived as three enemy strongholds. But that's where the analogy to the extension cord breaks down. If you unplug a cord, the power simply stops moving through it. In magic, however, that power still needs to go somewhere. And lacking a will to drive it, it tends to go back along the path that it's been moving on most recently. If I could manage to unplug Parker, that energy would come back here. And if I was very lucky... I could contain enough of it to keep this building from turning into a crater. I won't let you do it, Michael, I said. There's no honor in this, and those people have done nothing to you. But they will. Don't you understand that, Artax? They will. Unless we stop them now. Stay out of it. It doesn't concern you. I heard the stairwell doors below us as Tunstall and Katane slammed through them. I had to do this now. It's too late for that, Parker. You've already sown the wind. And I suppose that you're the whirlwind, he said. Electricity arced between my fingers. Just remember that you're the one who said that. He turned and charged me, just as I heard the door to the rooftop 
burst open. I don't think I'm necessarily hell-bound, but whatever heavens are out there are probably not vying with each other to get my soul when my life is done. So I was rather surprised to see the face of an angel, a beautiful woman, surrounded by a nimbus of light, when I opened my eyes. It was raining in this particular heaven, but it was a soft, cooling rain, so I figured I could deal with it. Then the angel shone a penlight directly into me eyes. Get that damn thing out of my face, I said, knocking it away. Yep, he's lucid, Detective Katane said. Will he be all right? asked another voice. Tunstall's voice, I noted, and laced with genuine concern. Well, he hit his head, so... Yeah, probably. Oh, look who's a laugh riot, I said. Now help me up before I turn you both into Lutons. They both pulled me to my feet. What was left of Parker was smouldering on one corner of the roof. Now what in the hells are you doing here? I asked Tunstall. Hey, go easy on the kid, Katane said. He saved your life up here. He shrugged and turned his face away in embarrassment. I did what anybody would have done, he said. Katane stifled a laugh. What a lot of people would have liked to be able to do, but few can, she said. She turned to me. He channeled and redirected the energy that you couldn't from that little stunt you pulled. If he hadn't been here, this building would be about three or four stories shorter. And that was after he saved a bunch of lives a few blocks from here. I arched an eyebrow. Really? She nodded. You remember that fireball that flew past us earlier? It hit a movie theater. Your boy here happened to be walking past, looking for you. He managed to use his power to keep the walls and ceiling up long enough for everybody to get out. The cooling effect of the rain was now being negated by the heat coming from Tonstall's face. I was half expecting it to turn to steam when it hit. I smiled for a moment. Then the memory of my vision of the young man came back to me, and I cursed myself. I'd been so intent on seeing my own prejudices that I hadn't considered any other interpretations of my visions. What about the rest of the students? The ones who stayed at your shop are being taken back to their center now, Katane said. The rest are with my force in the store. Don't worry, Artax, they're all accounted for. I wonder if I might impose on one of your men to take Master Tonstall and me back to my shop. I'd like to have a word with him there before he goes back to his facility. She nodded. I'll get someone to take you, she said. Somebody was already waiting for us when I opened the door to my shop. I don't know who you are or how you got in here, I said, but you picked the wrong store to try and rob. The figure stepped into the light. Rob, I just came to give you a tip on tomorrow's market. I let out the breath I'd been holding. I really wasn't up to facing any more trouble that evening. I turned to introduce Tunstall to the deposed trickster god, and saw that he'd already given my visitor a bow from the waist. Well, now things were starting to make sense. Lord Kleplos, he said. Good to see you again, sir. And you, young Tunstall. Things working out for you here, then? Tunstall cast a sidelong glance at me. He wasn't quite as open to my help as you implied he would be, Tunstall said, but things seemed to have worked out. Now, now, Klepnos said, I never said that he'd be willing to accept your help, 
just that he'd need it. Very important to listen to this one very carefully, I said. There was wry humor on Tunstall's face. I am learning that. Have you made a decision on my offer? I asked him. I'll have to sleep on it, but it seems like a good idea. I nodded. Go get your things. The officer will take you back. He was gone a few minutes later. Klepnos was fishing through his pockets, pulling out things like bicycle horns and rubber haddocks, before finally producing a tray with two glasses. Mine was a tall, cold glass of sarsaparilla, while his was three striated colours and seemed to have very tiny fish swimming about in it. For a while, we drank in silence. You offered to make him your apprentice, didn't you? I looked over at my friend. The half-smirk that always seemed to be on his face was gone, but the twinkle in his eyes was still there. Isn't that why you sent him to me? He leaned back in his chair. I sent him to help you with tonight, he said. Now, if you do decide to keep him on, well, I see a very beneficial relationship down that path. For both of you. You could have told me that he was working for you. But he's not. He's just somebody that I met in my volunteer work in the juvenile correction system. I barked out a laugh. You? A volunteer? I can't believe it. You're actually starting to run out of jokes to tell. It's no joke, Artax. I've been doing it for about two years now. The mirth drained from me. You're telling the truth. Why? He shrugged. Why should I lie? You know damn well what I'm talking about. Why the volunteer work? Now even the twinkle faded from his eyes. I'm scared, Artax. We all are. All the gods. He was. I could see the truth in his eyes. Scared? Of what? He chuckled, but it was the laugh of a terminally ill patient who's accepted their fate. The future, he said. We're not sure what's coming. None of us are, I said. Not even those of us who can see the future know what's coming. My own experience this night is a testimony to the fact. And when was the last time you really looked? he asked. Looked beyond your current situation, about how to get the customer exactly what they need so they'll leave faster, or how to use one of your students' own histories against him. There's a time, just a few years from now, when all prophecy fails. All of it, Artax. The gods look, and we see nothing. I didn't know what to say. After a minute or so, I asked, So what should I do? Just what you've been doing, he said, standing up. I sent you to this city for a reason, and your time is coming. This play doesn't center around you, but you're plenty close to a lot of the people that it does. He set down his drink and stared at it thoughtfully for a moment. When he looked back at me, his voice was gentle, the voice we'd use at the bedside of a dying man. And that frightened me more than anything he had said before. When I found you, you were a broken man. You rediscovered your purpose in life and got yourself back on track better than most people would. But now you're going to be tested again. That breaking point of long ago will either be the solid foundation on which you stand, 
or it will break you again. And this time, you won't recover. Which one happens is up to you. He rose then, downing the rest of his drink in one long pull. In a moment he was his old self again, his eyes and smile twinkling, as if all the grave words of the last few minutes had been forgotten. Now then, there's a young lady down south who's doing some interesting work, and I have to go see if she has any promise. He sketched a quick bow. I'll see myself out. I gotta say, I like him, Levinson said, after the door closed. I slumped sullenly in my chair. You would. You're both cut from the same cloth. You should have known me when I was human, he said. I wasn't the carefree soul that you see before you now. Well, not see, per se, but you get the idea. I just stared for a while, hoping he'd go away and let me brood. He didn't. Hey, you okay? No, I said. When he didn't leave, I went on. Not five years ago, I sat in this very room and told someone that my killing days were behind me. And tonight I made a liar of myself. His voice grew softer. You did what you had to do. If what your friend Klepnos tells me is true, then you saved a lot of lives in doing it. And the price is another life! I'm sorry, but that's just not acceptable. There had to have been another way. Maybe there was, maybe not. Either way, you didn't have the time to look for it. You did what you had to do. It's what happens when we operate on limited data, which, just in case you've forgotten, is all anybody but Eli gets. You think I would have volunteered to lead that mission had I known about this? I'm sorry, I said. And we're not angry, he said, his voice soft. Well, Nightwind was for a decade or so, but for an elf that's like being pissed off for a week. The fact is, we've all grown to accept and even embrace this. Even Nightwind. He's had something like three epiphanies now that he doesn't have a body to distract him. I just sat in silence for a while. I'll be around if you need me, he said at last. And then he was gone. Maybe he was right. Maybe I did simply have to move on. Maybe I needed to go through life realizing that, even though I know a lot more than most people, I didn't know everything. That in the end, I was just as blind as everyone else. And that I didn't have to do it alone. I didn't get up from my chair for a long time. And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find the text version of Make Believe in the Urban Legends Story Collection, which is on sale through Amazon in my online store. Links will be in the show notes. Anne Lamott said, Write straight into the emotional center of things. Write toward vulnerability. Risk being unliked. Tell the truth as you understand it. If you're a writer, you have a moral obligation to do this, and it is a revolutionary act. Truth is always subversive. So, put on your balaclavas and join the resistance. Here's your weekly writing report. (laughs) 
I wrote 4,340 words this week, over the course of 6.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 694 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 152 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on edits for The Lost and the Least. I wrote a new Chapter 10, which fills in some gaps in John's storyline, and wrote about half of a new Chapter 65, which ties up one of the plot threads that I had forgotten to resolve in the first draft. The manuscript is now at 220,500 words. I still have autographed copies of all my books available for sale. If you missed me at Balticon, here's your best opportunity to get a personalized Metamore gift for yourself or someone you love. All the information is at my online store, squareup.com market slash liminal hyphen corvid hyphen press. I'll put a link in the show notes. Books are only available while supplies last, so order yours today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my all-new Mastodon handle is author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2008 and 2017 by Brian Watson and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.